Welcome, welcome, welcome to Notes in the Net, a weekly tangential, irreverent conversation that caters to the interests of liminal trickster mystics like you. And I would say, like our very special guest today, Mitch Horowitz is here. I'm, I couldn't be more excited. It was such a wonderful conversation. And I feel generally honored, privileged, and overjoyed to have gotten to talk to Mitch, who is like one of my intellectual heroes. Uh, Mitch is the author of like, I think it's 13 or 14 books now, the most recent of which uh, we talk about a lot in this podcast. It's called Modern Occultism, and it comes out pretty much everywhere, including audio, digital, and print on September 19th. Mitch Horowitz represents something of a dream guest for me. Uh, you've heard him on the DTFH, Dunk Trussell Family Hour. You've heard him on Team Human. You've heard him on the Ultra Culture Podcast with Jason Louv. Uh, these, I mean, like to get to interview someone who's been on many of your own favorite podcasts and to, you know, actually put a face to the voice and connect on a, you know, <laughs> the spiritual level that's available to us through uh, digital communication like video call uh, was an absolute treat. And I know you're going to love this episode, so I'm not going to belabor the intro. Uh, you can find links to uh, pre-order Mitch's new book, Modern Occultism, at creekmasons.substack.com. And uh, I'll also throw up a link to the Philosophical Research Society where Mitch is going to be doing some talks uh, down there in LA in the next month or so. And I think that those things are going to be a lot of fun. So if you're in the area, check it out. And if you're not in the area, read this book. I fucking loved it. And it, it really did answer a lot of the questions that I've been kicking around about spirituality and the new age and occultism since my awakening in 2020. Uh, so I am going to do the usual thing and read a little bit of an essay from the Creek Masons blog at creekmasons.substack.com. And then the next thing you hear will be us jumping right into this episode with occult scholar Mitch Horowitz. I promised I'd relate this to my other three essays on Jungian influence on technology. Well, here's the kicker. Recommendation algorithms are the perfect metaphor for the law of attraction. Regardless of which explanation of the law of attraction you ascribe to, from materialist to psychological to metaphysical, the technological simulacrum of the process represented by recommendation algorithms can be a useful way to conceptualize and harness the power of manifestation. This idea belongs to Jessa Reed of Awakening OD. She frequently employs colorful contemporary metaphors to describe our relationship with reality. Her brilliant, delightfully myth-oriented mind creates connections between the soul school we're stuck in and video games, restaurants, and TikTok-style algorithms. The universe, she says, will only give you what you focus on. If a video critical of Trump's mugshot triggers you to have some kind of intense emotional reaction and you aren't paying attention to your instinctual behavior, you might watch it more than once, spending more eyeball time on the image or video. You might go into the comments to read how the community is reacting to it. If you feel vindicated by the outrage the content conveys, maybe you hit the like button. Maybe you share it. Maybe you even go into the user's page and browse their other videos. 
Apps like TikTok reward all this attention the same way the universe does, if you buy into the theory of the law of attraction. They give you more of what you are apparently focused on. If you're not careful, mindful, hygienic in a way with your media consumption, your feed quickly becomes a triggering doomscape full of nothing but disgust, anxiety, rage, and screaming. If that's what you focus on, that's what you manifest. So here's the question. Did the designers of recommendation algorithms consciously mimic this fundamental law of the universe? Did they manifest the reality of attraction via their subconscious understanding of it? Or is it just a coincidence that whatever you focus on begins to show up more and more, whether you're online or off? And read the rest of that essay again at creekmissions.substack.com. Find all the links to get in touch with Mitch and read his new book there as well. And without further ado, here is Mitch Horowitz becoming a node in our net. How's it going? Good to see you, man. All, yeah. all good. Uh, Mitch Horowitz, I, it is a delight. It's a privilege. It's an honor uh, to have you become a node in my net. Uh, I'm I'm like really thrilled to have you. I, you are, you know, one of my favorite like authors on the occult. Thank You're, you. Uh, one of the most eloquent speakers I've ever heard in any <laughs> genre. Thank you. And uh, you seem to be uh challenging isaac asimov for a number of words written over the course of a career uh, so it's, it's really exciting to have you i really appreciate it uh good to be here man thank you so much yeah and so uh speaking of words written you've sent over uh the modern occult uh which is your newest book it's i've um i found it to be exactly the book that i needed as someone who has kind of come late to the game of occultism, like maybe I was initiated into it as a result of the collective confrontation with death that the pandemic provided. <laughs> and so uh, like this, uh, this sort of uh, introduction, I, I guess, and like the level of detail of the history of all of these ideas that I've been getting more and more excited about mm -hmm. um, has, has been really, really valuable to me. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, you know, one of the things that I really made the effort to do was to write the book, not only with thoroughness, but to identify those areas where other historians, maybe because they're so close to the material, have not teased out certain details that can be teased out and ought to be teased out, just resolve certain questions or clarified areas where there's been persistent confusion. And one of the things that I've been really pleased about since people have been taking early reads of the book is that a lot of people, apropos of your comments, have remarked that they have an experience of great clarity when reading it, yeah. that they come to it 
without necessarily having every box checked in terms of expertise, but they get very clear, definite explanations. And I always try to be really clear about that because once you have the basics down, it's like learning a language. You know, you really need to learn the basics of past, present, future, and then you can start to experiment. You can start to feel good about it. And that's that's how I hope the reader would be able to approach occultism in this book. Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect explanation of it. The history and the the clarity like grounds you more in I think the application of like the more practical elements of the occult. That's my wish. That's my wish. And and I also wanted to give people a sense of where our ideas of the occult really come from in terms of the family tree of traceable history, because mm-hmm. we in the 21st century, and this has been true for a long, long time, tend to view our religious ideas as being very ancient. And antiquity corresponds to seriousness or truth or validity in the minds of a lot of modern people. There's something validating about posterity mm-hmm. and antiquity. Um, I'm not going to so much argue with that as I want to point out that a lot of what we think of as being ancient in our spiritual traditions, whether mainstream or so-called alternative or what have you, it really emanates from very late antiquity because that's the period when Mm -hmm. things that were populous in the ancient world may be in the form of oral tradition, initiation, architecture, rite, myth, parable, symbol, started to get written down in expository languages, very often Greek, sometimes Arabic, that Western people could get their minds around and understand. And so, for example, the encounter between Greek and Egyptian culture in the decades uh, preceding and following Cleopatra, or rather I should say the generations preceding and following Cleopatra, created a, a literature that we refer to as hermetic literature, which is basically a Greek rendering of certain ideas that existed within Egyptian esoteric tradition that probably belonged to a much older lineage of oral tradition. But again, it just happened to have gotten written down in late antiquity, got revived during the Renaissance. It's a very broken thread. Uh, It's a very serpentine thread. Mm -hmm. And it's an incomplete thread, but it's the best we've got in terms of referencing a lot of the occultic ideas, whether in terms of divination or astrology, conjuring, alchemy, that were reborn during the Renaissance. So we have to come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of discontinuity in our religious systems in general. Uh, The Jewish liturgy itself, for example, goes to the Middle Middle Ages. it's a very powerful, very beautiful liturgy, but that too was a, was a product of, of post-antiquity. So to really understand ourselves and the road that we've walked, we need to understand where some of ideas, where some of our ideas begin, and frankly, the disadvantages that we face in terms of receiving fragments from antiquity, because history is messy and stuff right. gets interrupted and stuff gets lost and stuff gets yeah. corrupted yeah. and polluted. And uh, we're not the beneficiaries of a great deal of material from antiquity. Right. And we're, we're sort of in this moment right now where a couple of texts have resurfaced in, in sort of a similar way. You write about this a little bit in the, in the most recent book. Um, yeah. In, in a similar way to some of the uh, Corpus Hermetica resurfacing during the Renaissance, 
uh, we've recently gotten some Gnostic texts and things like that. And I wonder, yeah. like, I, I mean, it almost feels like we've got the Matrix and the Lego movie and the Barbie movie and all yeah. of these like great, very popular depictions of, you know, reality being an illusion. Um, and, uh, and it's just sort of, it's, it's interesting to see how despite the thread being broken, when there are new discoveries that help complete the timeline, there's, uh, there's like a resurgence. I mean, these ideas still hold uh, value. They hold like sway and, and uh, explanatory power of our uh, experience. Well, as you alluded, our generation at this immediate moment is really in a remarkably advantageous position in terms of being able to explore some of these late ancient texts. And it's really a very exciting time to be a seeker because mm. I would say with respect to the esoteric and the occult, first of all, one of the things I, I point out in the book is that we are the recipients in the here and now of some of the very first really truly serviceable English translations of the Hermetic literature, this late, this yeah. late ancient Greek-Egyptian literature. Um, there have been other translations, certainly. Translations going back to the uh, late Renaissance, translations going back to the Victorian era. But for various reasons, they, they have been polluted by a lot of historical difficulties and misuses. And for one thing, the pickings until recently have been awfully slim. Hermetic literature was really, really neglected. For example, you will find exactly none of it in the Loeb Classical Library that Harvard started publishing in the early 20th century, which is considered kind of the gold standard canonized um, codification of the great works of classical antiquity. And Hermeticism is absent from it. And it's absent because there were historical controversies about when the Hermetic literature got written down. And as a result of the controversies for a long, long time, Hermeticism was seen as something, it was fraudulent, it was tawdry, it was kind of this mutt, uh, this yeah. mongrel of, of, of Egyptiana, or pseudo-Egyptiana mixed with Neoplatonism, and it wasn't considered a real expression of antiquity. So it was neglected by classicists for a long, long time. And the tide began to turn in the 1980s and 90s. It's continued to turn today. And so we have good, solid translations of Hermeticism. Um, people will quibble over them, and those quibbles are worthwhile. But we have, we have good, serviceable translations for the first time, arguably. Um, Likewise, Gnosticism, a, a whole cache of Gnostic manuscripts were discovered uh, towards the end of uh, the Second World War uh, in Egypt. And uh, likewise, astrology, um, Project Hindsight and, and people organized under other auspices are revising, I'm sorry, uh, translating uh, Greek and Latin astrological manuscripts that have never been translated before. Mm. We have this myopic view that everything that survived all the tremors of history uh, has 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 been translated or everything worthwhile has been translated. And of course, that's a big mistake. Uh, stuff yeah. has been neglected. New stuff gets discovered. Stuff, you know, is sometimes sitting uh, in, in, in libraries at universities or religious centers or in the hands of private collectors that no one has, has translated before into any of the Romance languages or English. So 
this is happening now and it's yeah. pretty exciting. We're going through kind of like a, a petite renaissance of yeah. re-encounter with the occult and esoteric. I'm I'm a victim of it myself. That's <laughs> cool. Yeah. And I mean, even beyond just translating the primary text, there's the uh, the job of people like you or Jason Louvre or or others who uh, translate the ideas of those texts into something that's very approachable and like we were saying earlier, provides clarity. And yeah. it, it almost feels like we're it, at a historical moment where for the first time we don't need to rely on, I guess, gurus or, or monks or, you know, any kind of like uh, formal initiation. Although your book definitely made me hungry to like get initiated or start a cult or join a cult or something <laughs> like that. That was, that was one of the effects of the first few chapters. Um, but, it uh, but it seems like we can initiate ourselves into, into these ideas. There's uh, more information available to any given seeker today than uh, has maybe ever uh, existed. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, the classicist uh, Walter Honegraaff, who published last year a brilliant book called um, Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination. Uh, Walter, who has been one of the real forces behind establishing esoteric studies within academia, he makes the case that according to the evidence presented in the texts, hermetic seekers in late antiquity really formed into very, very small circles, maybe in people's mm -hmm. homes, maybe three, four people max. And, um, and he makes that case persuasively, um, whether and to what extent that informs our search today, it, 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 it would be too great a leap for me to say. But I do know that my search at this present moment is a solitary search. I have been through periods where I have participated in groups and um, that's for every individual to decide for him or herself. There are wildly varying qualities found uh, within different groups as much as there are different qualities found within different individuals. Um, mm -hmm. I've benefited from, from my participation, but my, my search today is a solitary one. Yeah. So that, that actually, that kind of leads into another uh, question that I wanted to ask with, um, you know, conjuring to mind the image of Baphomet that you describe uh, Eliphas Levy having drawn, um, yeah. which has this, um, you know, like union of opposites theme. There's the breasts and the male figure and the, you know, animal and human. And the I think it's Latin for dissolve and combine yes. the yes. hands in opposite mm -hmm. directions. Mm -hmm. So all of this is, uh, you know, is meaningful to me. I think the idea of, creating union between opposites is a, a powerful message for the culture that we're in right now. Um, but in particular, taking the, you know, the title of this podcast, which is sort of a play on uh, Indra's net. Um, and this idea about like individuality and the individual search versus uh, belonging, I guess, or, or acceptance or, receptivity to the, you know, whatever the universe provides. Um, so there's, there's kind of like two ways to look at it, right? Like you've got the Eastern wisdom that says, you know, where are we and we should accept, you know, like 
Terra Brock, like radically accept everything that comes to you. And that's kind of like the default spiritual mode that, you know, seekers are, are tended to uh, have advertised to them. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Western occult thing, which is like very attractive, especially um, when you're first starting out that idea of like, I think you say projecting will and, Uh, So there's this tension between receptivity and activity. And I think it's the same tension as a jewel in Indra's net and the net in some. And I I wonder what that brings up for you. How do we, how do we unite those, um, those two elements? Cause they are both true, just at Mm -hmm. different uh, zoom levels, it seems. Well, it's interesting. Um, there's so much to unpack there. You, you mentioned Baphomet, and Baphomet is almost, in some respects, a perfect symbol of the wonderful disclarity of all of this, you know, and, and how the individual should find his or her way within it. Baphomet is Eliphas Levi's modernist drawing of both a well, we'll say a dramatized version of the goat of Mendes, uh, 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 a sacred goat associated with the ancient Egyptian ceremonial uh, center. And the Egyptians had uh, more than one a goat-headed uh, de- deity themselves. Um, it's important to note they did not sacrifice goats. They venerated goats. And uh, if we can believe the account of Herodotus, Sometimes uh, they actually had physical intimacies uh, with goats. I don't think it was a regular feature of the of the sect, but it was known to occur. Um, I always like to point that out to people when they show the traditional satanic mass of somebody sacrificing a goat, and it's like, well, well, hold up, you know, our ancient ancestors venerated goats; they didn't kill them, um, other than you know, perhaps uh, for for dietary purposes or reasons of survival. But, uh, but certainly not ceremonially. Um, so after the conclusion of the Crusades, when the Knights Templar uh, were suppressed by the French monarchy and the Catholic Church, they were accused of worshipping something called Baphomet, which actually might have been a, a, a Middle French mangling of the term of, of, of well, we would say Muhammad today, but, but they might have said Mohammed, Mohammed. And... And then Levi took all these messy threads and he put them together into one by very confidently uh, uh, naming the, the, the goat of Mendes, the, the goat of the Sabbath, uh, Baphomet, um, apropos of the, the supposed Templar uh, heresy, which, which may have just been drummed up to, to suppress them. Uh, we really don't know, and there are there the, the, history discloses only so much because we're depending upon personal accounts confessions some of which were undoubtedly coerced so it's hard to say but 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 we look at baphomet and we think wow um okay so this is this very alluring symbol that's come down to us what do we do with it it's filled with so many contradictions and we don't even understand how to approach it is the legitimate tradition does it really belong to something does it really reflect egyptian antiquity does it really reflect what the Mm -hmm. templars were going uh after does it just reflect perhaps the brilliant historical imagination of elphus levi it may be that it reflects all three, you know, to some greater or lesser extent. Um, and then what does the individual do with the message of Baphomet, which, as you alluded, is 
I think very legitimately from alchemical tradition, the uniting of opposites, salve et coagula, um, mm. dissolve and unite. It's a mixture of the, 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 the human and the animalistic, like the centaur. It's a mixture of masculine and feminine. It's a mixture of higher, lower. I quite love this symbol because I feel that one of the conundrums that we modern people who have grown up within the Abrahamic religious tradition, which is to say Judaism, Christianity, Islam, experience, and this also comes from Aristotelian tradition, is this question of sharp divisions. Everything's a division. Um, yeah. Heaven, hell, God, Satan, good, bad, um, yeah. me, you. Uh, you know, everything is divided into opposites, up, down. But but yet these opposites are not real. They're conceptual. Um, mm. You know, if I were to point up right now from my chair in Brooklyn, New York, it would mean nothing to a guy in <laughs> Sydney, Australia. And that's quite yeah. literally true. I mean, that's as plain as, as it gets. You know, we, yeah. we, we decide upon these compass points of reality and we reify them in such a way that they're the name of the game. They're real. They're concrete. But they're just concepts of, of reality. And I used to get torn apart by questions of by questions of ambition, uh, we'll say, of, to use a term that's unattractive within the spiritual culture, versus um, non-attachment. And yeah. I think that that division is artificial, and I think that division can tear the seeker in two. And mm. on, on one hand, you know, the seeker from whatever tradition is trying to understand that, well, the real world is the invisible world, and, and I don't mm. want to get lost in the world of samsara and maya and illusion. But that world of samsara and maya and illusion has a claim on us, has a claim on us. Yeah, um, yeah. Who among us is not going to get involved in relationships, is not going to get involved in sexuality, is not going to get involved in paying for groceries, is not going to get yeah, involved, yeah. frankly, in trying to get things done in the world according to whatever a person's wishes are. Believe mm -hmm. me, I've heard all the lovely um, dictionary definitions of exactly what non-attachment is supposed to mean. And, you know, I could I could write them down and paste them up on my my bathroom mirror, but they don't actually work at 2.30 p.m. on Tuesday, you know, which is which to say, you know, when you're in the mix of real life, you're involved in life and life has a claim on us. Life has a claim on us. So I don't dig this idea of like inner and outer. I just don't, I don't think that that meets us where we live. And to direct myself to your point, mm. action versus repose again they both have a claim on us they both have a claim on us mm. um i might go and sit in meditation when you and i are done here but then mm. i i i have to get something done and i'm going to push to get that done because it's vitally necessary for me or for somebody i love or something and so i think that that we as seekers i think can allow ourselves to feel more relaxed about these divisions that have been communicated to us through the traditions, because these traditions, first of all, they don't necessarily cover all the bases of life. They're not as old as we've been raised to think they are. And I also think that the times that we live in have a claim on us in the same way that the times that, oh, I don't know, you know, some, some guy living in the year 500 had a claim on him. You know, he had certain needs that were particular to his times. In, in, in particular, I would say that up until very, very recently, 
a person mm. living in any society on earth had very little chance of dying in a social caste or social position other than mm. the one into which he or she was born. And we living in the West in the 21st century are not exactly faced with that same situation. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm ready to throw out everything that's come previous to us, but religions have always been conditioned by the period of time in which they've been developed, by the location in which they've been developed. And we have to pay attention to that too. Uh, we can't substitute religions, which are conceptual, for um, the search, which is individual to every every seeker. Uh, there, there are questions of verification. There are confusions. There are, are false uh, feelings of arrival that we then discover, well, maybe I'm not so sure about that anymore and, <laughs> and so on. Anyway, I'm just saying I think we can afford to be more relaxed about the divisions that have been sold to us over the years because they're as conditioned as any other um, category or classification upon yeah. which we rely. Well, what is, I mean, what does the Kabbalion say? It's uh, all, all polar opposites are the same thing, just different degrees, right? So Yeah, that teaching has been, I think, is very effective. You know, it's thematically, thematically, uh, it echoes Hermeticism. And I think uh, the author of that book, the modern author of that book, William Walker Atkinson, mm -hmm. was a quite supple and lovely man. And, and I thought he brought a good framing to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is, I mean, there's, at, at the same time that we have this uh, ability to like explore everything, there's kind of a, I don't know, maybe this is changing gears a little bit, but there's uh, a suspicion or maybe a, a denigration or like a dismissal. I don't know exactly the word I want to use, but there's, despite there being um, people like you who are, you know, advocates who are, I, I would say you're like probably one of the most respected people in this field. Um, there, there's still this like general notion of the, you know, scientific materialist elite or whatever, you know, the yeah. rationalist uh, sure. people that, uh, that like the whole thing is, you know, the whole spiritual search is uh, a pointless, you know, uh, exploration into something that doesn't really exist. It's all delusion and illusion and whatever. Um, yeah. so even, yeah. even beyond like stepping back from the duality of like, are we an I or a we in the spiritual search? There's this whole other duality of like, is there spirit or is there not? And I think that, uh, you know, the, the persecution that people who are interested in these things have experienced is uh it's i mean it's kind of interesting with uh you know the alien stuff that's coming up in congress right now where we're mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. like seeing for the first time all of these uh i think the first time i i haven't been around long enough to know how serious it was taken during the x-files or whatever but Not i mean really. like <laughs> congressional hearings with like high level pentagon officials where they're yeah. explicitly saying that they have quote unquote biologicals uh, and, and the way that, you know, previous, uh, experiencers of that phenomenon have been like, uh, you know, cast aside as like quacks or, or, yep. or idiots or whatever. Um, 
I think that, you know, I feel some of that persecution myself, perhaps. Uh, like I, I can't, I can't really uh, talk about all of my spiritual beliefs at work in the same way that someone uh, who is like a, you know, a pure scientist might be able to, or, or uh, what have you. And I, I don't know that that parallel is interesting to me, like alien uh, experiencers, which may uh, legitimately be considered its own religion itself, ufology, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and, um, and seekers into the occult, or or even seekers into Eastern mysticism. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, with respect to spirituality versus materialism, people uh, in general, uh, and and I think human nature tends in this direction universally, at least in my experience, people want a world in which they feel safe. They want a world in which they feel validated, seen, appreciated. And they will claim to be speaking from a philosophy uh, whereas they're really just speaking from preference or from sentiment or from mm-hmm. what makes them feel safe. Emotions come first, and our intellectual justifications come a very distant second, <laughs> which is why these arguments get so bitter. Um, one could say, who cares whether Mitch is right about uh, ESP research and someone else is wrong or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And and the reason that these arguments are so... Um, intense is because we're really arguing over what kind of world people feel safe within. And, and, and we formulate these very deeply felt emotional positions to the point where they're almost like this underground ocean within our psyche, unacknowledged, but expressed through what we profess uh, as principle, as uh, outlook, as philosophy. Whereas it's just window dressing on what's really going on inside. Now, mm. my conception of life since I've always, since I've been a kid, since my earliest memory, uh, has been uh, extra physical or spiritual. Mm. Uh, for another person, the exact opposite may be may be true. Um, people have stories of their own about why they came to a particular point of view, um, and they all feel like you know, on the surface, they're trying to speak to reality, but they're really trying to speak to is a world that makes them feel safe, myself included, which is why it's so hard to hash out these things. Now, the fact is, uh, the lack of acceptance that's been baked into our culture for a long time, I think it's shifting, but this lack of acceptance mm-hmm. of the spiritual or the extra physical, uh, it may have started in emotion, but it's become a feature of modernist thought modernity, I would say if modernity has one defining principle, it's the idea that there are unseen antecedents to life. And that's very often interpreted in a materialistic or physicalistic way. So if you're a Marxist, that's economics. If you're a Freudian, that's uh, unseen uh, neuroses or childhood traumas. Uh, For Darwin, it's a biologically orderly uh, assemblage of life. For Einstein, it's time-space um, yeah, for yeah. Pasteur, it's germ theory. None of these are necessarily mutually exclusive by any means. In fact, very mm-hmm. often they, they work in tandem, but the conviction is there are unseen antecedents to life. Excluded from that has been the extra physicals, the religious, the esoteric, the spiritual, call it whatever you wish. Um, because some of the primary forces in modernity, Marx in particular, were hostile to religion as a blinkering 
factor of life, blinkering us in the case of Marx to materialist forces, economics, that were really the name of the game. To a lesser extent, Freud felt that way. You can't go too far with that with regard to Freud because he was very interested in ESP research and he wasn't absolute on the matter by any means. But he too would have agreed with Marx to the extent that he felt like religion, Victorian religion at least, papered over sexual conflicts that people had and such. And and so modernity, uh, it came to, in its search for hidden causes, in its search for antecedents, came to exclude the extraphysical. And that's why, for example, the science of parapsychology has struggled since its formal academic inception in the early 1930s. Uh, mm. We're now going on a century of parapsychology, and the statistics for some sort of extrasensory perception as found in laboratory setting have proven uh, replicable. Uh, yeah, they have yeah. proven uh, bulletproof. They are as good as uh, the best statistics that we gather today in, in the social sciences and, and branches of medicine. Um, mm. and, and yet, parapsychology, while it does exist on college campuses, it's hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Uh, materialism has at once triumphed and lost. Materialism, which is to say a belief that life is, is strictly the result of um, mechanical, physicalist, biological processes. Life is a um, chemical, uh, organic compound and nothing else. And to speak of yeah. uh, anything that goes beyond the physical is to speak in terms of utter fantasy. Uh, materialism has won uh, it, it, culturally. Uh, it has lost intellectually. And uh, mm. we're going to have to live with that conflict for, I suspect, another generation or so. Uh, mm. Materialism is dominant within a great deal of um, opinion-shaping media. Materialism is dominant among uh, very uh, appealing media personalities, some of whom I quite like, uh, like Bill yeah. Maher or or Rachel Maddow, um, materialism is certainly dominant uh, on campus. Uh, it's dominant within psychology departments. Um, less so, interestingly enough, within the hard sciences. There's greater openness within engineering. There's greater openness within physics. There's greater openness within medicine to immaterial questions because you're talking to people who actually really know what's going on and who yeah. study things and know what it means to sort of hit a, a plexiglass uh, wall where you're saying, gee, I really don't understand how this works, but I know that there's something going on here. I know there's a relationship that I can't quite piece together. So um, materialism no longer covers the basis of life in the uh, 20th century, uh, 21st century. Um, mm -hmm. We know that through quantum mechanics, I would, yeah. I would argue. Uh, we know that through psychical research. We know that through neuroplasticity. Uh, we certainly have tantalizing questions of that in connection with certain um, precincts of mind-body medicine. Uh, it doesn't work. It does not work as a categorical imperative. Uh, which means it can't be this defining philosophy by which we organize our lives. Yeah. Um, a law that works sometimes is not a law. You know, it may be a force and it may be important, but it's not exactly a law. A law by definition is supposed to be universal. So uh, we're in this weird conundrum where uh, the materialists have lost intellectually, and yet they still kind of have their hands on all the levers. And that's just the situation we find ourselves in. Um, yeah the next generation may sort it out. You know, for, for now, ours is going to be in this kind of weird, divided place. 
<laughs> yeah, I you know I trust your opinion as a as a historian. I guess a believing historian. Uh, you're you're someone who can like take the big picture, and I I I do believe you uh, that we're probably stuck here for another generation. But at the same time, I'm really hoping for that like big alien disclosure that oh listen if the biological <laughs> evidence comes through you know in four hours uh, we're going to really be living in a very different world um i think that the ufo thesis you know as you were referencing is is very important to our time the uh the tone and the tenor and the 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 quality of its public exploration has increased dramatically over the past five years mm-hmm. um Thanks in part to the effort of uh, Leslie Keen, Ralph Blumenthal, and Helene Cooper at the New York Times, and um, yeah. and others who have who have worked with them, and uh, we're seeing stuff that I couldn't have imagined six mm-hmm. seven years ago. Um, at a certain point, we're going to need to turn the page on testimony, which I take very seriously. Um, actually, that's not really a fair statement on my part. I mean, we have more than testimony. We have uh, high def video uh, yeah. radar. We have physical. We have physical evidence. Um, in terms of uh, uh, biologic assets, uh, uh, we'll need to turn the page on that at a certain point. Uh, there's going to need to be a, a furtherance of that disclosure. But uh, we certainly have, uh, in terms of radar, high def video, and so forth, we have evidence gathered under uh, as stringent a condition as we can gather field evidence. So uh, it's pretty exciting. It 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 is. It's very exciting if you're of the disposition to be excited by it. You know, right, there, right. there's this weird phenomenon that ha- that's happening where like I can't seem to interest, uh, you know, like certain family members and stuff like this. And it makes me wonder, like, even if there was a huge disclosure, I mean, like you're saying earlier, we got to buy groceries, we got to get our oil changed. You know, there's you're stuck at a job for 40 hours a week and all of this, uh, you know, obligations of material reality are still so oppressive that even if there was like yeah. a, a revelation of uh you know the the things that we know in quantum physics or that um you know i do you know uh even alexander sure sure yeah like those the the reincarnation ideas and the mm-hmm. you know the ideas about um just the the what is what's it called it's like metaphysical idealism like which is supposed to adhere pretty closely to the tenets of like alien philosophy like those things go together really well um but uh i guess it just sort of seems i mean maybe that's maybe that's the generation that we have to uh wait through or 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 persist through is like um People don't seem to, I don't know. It's interesting because at the same time that there's this resistance to uh, changing your life or restructuring your life or or even changing your behavior based on these revelations, even among people who are like excited by them like me. Yeah, yeah, sure. I understand. Well, Uh, you know, radical changes can be very uneven. Um, We'll take, for example, the advent of Christianity in the Western world. Uh, the Emperor Constantine uh, in mm-hmm. Rome converted to Christianity uh, around 312, 313 AD. Um, that really marked the uh, significant ascendancy of Christianity. 
but it still took a long time. Constantine combined what he called Christianity with with sun worship. He continued to worship the sun god Sol Invictus. Um, early Christians, many early Christians, uh, continued to worship some of the old gods, not only Sol Invictus, but also Jupiter. We have records of up until the mid-5th century A.D., uh, Christian pilgrims on the steps of St. Peter's Cathedral uh, turning to face the sun uh, at a certain point of day to 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 pay worship to Sol Invictus or uh, performing rites of devotion to Jupiter until at a certain point where the bishops had to say, you know, hey, folks, uh, we're not doing this anymore on the <laughs> steps of St. Peter's. Um, so it took a long time. And mm -hmm. and certainly there were pagan traditions uh, persistent um, in like the German speaking regions of Europe until the 700s. Um, it didn't all happen at once. So radical changes can occur and mm -hmm. And, and it can take, you know, a century, two centuries to digest. The digestion might happen more quickly today because we're all in touch with one another, um, which seems to be a mixed blessing, but that's the way it is. And since we're all in touch with one another um, and we can continually discover how much we like one another, um, this, this, this process may may unfold more quickly if it unfolds at all. But it's important to remember that these these vast changes that we demarcate to certain times and places in history were very uneven. So I'd imagine something like that will happen today. You know, I remember years ago I was talking to somebody about how exciting I thought it was to discover possibly microbial fossils on Mars and uh, water yeah. on Mars, water on the moon. And I thought, you know, when I was a kid, these were supposed to be these dead, lifeless rocks. And today mm -hmm. stuff is happening. And she said to me, well, you know, it doesn't affect me on my morning commute. It doesn't, yeah. I don't sense my, my, my consciousness being altered or what have you. And I, I have to grant that, but it can affect us in ways perhaps that are subtle, that are unexpected. I mean, the very fact that people could be having a discussion about uh, UFOs in a very public setting without justifying themselves in, in yeah. some way, without having to, um, you know, make jokes or excuses or, 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 uh, explain to people that, you know, they're not crazy or some such. Um, <laughs> I, I remember, you know, gosh, what was it? Several months ago, there was a spate of balloon sightings over the United yeah. States. Yeah. We've right. all forgotten about it now, but, but for weeks and weeks, it was the talk of the nation. What are these balloons? It's China. It's this, it's that. And, mm. and one of these balloons, uh, I believe was shot down over one of the coastal areas and there was a headline of the wall street journal saying you know uh, search for ufo wreckage continues and i'm thinking okay this is not the weekly world news this is the wall street journal you wouldn't yeah. have seen that headline five years ago and now it's just like oh okay and what else is going on in the world you know how are my stocks doing and how's the search for that ufo wreckage going you know these are changes mm. in our discourse that are radical that are radical and i i from time to time, we'll share these things on social media as if to share a headline that says, um, you know, a dragon is discovered, you know, in Nepal or something. You know, it's just something that yeah. would have belonged strictly to the realm of fantasy. And now it's part of our lingua franca. So it is a change. How that's changed this on the level of the psyche is an interesting question. I, I have mm -hmm. no immediate response to that. But it's, it's something that we ought to keep in mind because the, the language we're using is different.
Well, I wonder. I wonder if we like if we look at the modern occult sort of uh, lens on this, and uh, if if we take into account the philosophies of hermeticism and Gnosticism, and you know, even even like Wicca and stuff, like um, all of these, uh, all of these. It's kind of a what the word is. Can you explain transmigration of souls? Well, transmigration of souls is a term that is sometimes used in conjunction with reincarnation. Mm-hmm. A, I mean, these are just concepts of reality. Of course, we we have no more idea what goes on after after death than 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 does the hardened materialist or the most dedicated religionist. Um, but. You'll find uh, within ancient texts concepts of reincarnation that sometimes are very explicit. There sometimes are just very suggestive and unclear. Within Hermeticism, there seems to be a philosophy of eternal recurrence or transmigration yes, yes. of souls, but it's it's unclear. It, it, it's it's not enunciated with this in this ABC expository fashion mm-hmm. that we in the twenty first and 20th centuries are accustomed to. Um, Within Vedic tradition, one finds philosophies of transmigration of souls or eternal recurrence or what in modernity came to be called reincarnation. And sometimes that might involve personalities. Sometimes that might involve just the life essence of the individual uh, rejoining some sort of whole, some sort of life stuff or noose, a life force or intellect as, as the ancient hermeticists uh, saw it. Um, And yet we also have uh, modern investigations such as those uh, conducted by the recently deceased parapsychologist uh, Ian Stevenson, a brilliant man who gathered field evidence that he spoke, that he felt spoke to the um, suggestion of reincarnation in a very literal form in the transmigration of personality. Um, The modernist uh, philosopher he wouldn't have wanted to be called a modernist, I suppose. Uh, René Guénon, um, he uh, argued vociferously and with great eloquence that there was no reincarnation uh, in ancient mm-hmm. philosophies. It was all symbolic and it had been misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I don't think that stands up. His argument is very brilliant, but um, his means of getting there is very brilliant. And uh, a brilliant accident can sometimes be more uh, alluring than a, a mundane truth, I suppose. But <laughs> I think that, that that his reasoning, while it's extraordinary, just extraordinary, as so much of what he did is, uh, simply does not stand up against the textual evidence for reincarnation as a philosophy in uh, Vedic and, and Buddhist texts and, and, and hermetic texts. So Again, did- reincarnation is a modern term. Gotcha. So, but at the same time, this, uh, this, I mean, it, it kind of like all, all of these different, the, you've got the yugas and the yeah. Aquarian age and the procession of the equinoxes. And, uh, you know, there's the concept in like the new age circles that I run in on like discord and stuff of, uh, of the idea of like, we're in a soul school and we're, we're on the verge of ascension and, you know, the disclosures and the, I mean, the confluence of crises that we're facing mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, civil war, culture war to climate change to everything. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's these increasing disclosures about aliens that you see from like Chris Bledsoe and, uh, and, and, 
you know, more serious. I get. I don't know if I want to say more serious. Chris Bledsoe's awesome. UFO of God was a really interesting book. Um, but the, you know, it also it all sort of points to this uh, ascension idea, and I don't know. Is that is that just a repackaging of the return of the Messiah, the the second coming? And, you know, something that we've been obsessed with throughout history or, or does it feel different this time? So much of human thought is a repackaging of millennialism or the coming of the Messiah. That is so deeply entrenched in Abrahamic religion, particularly Judaism and Christianity, that it's almost asserts itself in all of our philosophies. You know, what else is Marxism but a materialistic version of Messianism? Yeah. You know, I mean, inevitable forces are assembling to wipe out those elements that are exploitative and something will come next. We're not quite sure what it is, but it'll be uh, anarchic and 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 vastly better compared to the uh, uh, exploitative um, yeah. it, it like the dominant it, it, economic it, it, model that, that, yeah. that steals yeah. people's labor and value from them. Uh, but anyway, it's there's an inevitability to it and it's held to with a uh, religious or scientific uh, certainty. And in fact, the term science is dis, 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 dis deployed in the 21st century and in the 21st century with a uh, religious fervor, with a certainty of authority, almost like Moses coming down from the mount with the holy tablets. Whereas mm-hmm. what is science? But it's methodological replication. That's what it is. It's mm-hmm. methodological replication. And it's brought us many, many, many wonderful things. But it's 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 not the substitute religion that it has been presented as. So, mm-hmm. so much in our lives, including the New Age point of view, that we're developing to these these greater echelons of consciousness is messianic. And I, I don't see any reason for that. I don't see any verification of that. Mm. Uh, that kind of thinking has marked human history where we're just around the corner. We're just around the corner, you know, from... Yeah. From, from Judaism to Christianity to Rastafarianism, we're always just around the corner yeah. from this golden age. Uh, that's 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 the Marxist certainty. You know, people walk around today using the term late capitalism all the time. Yeah. How do we know we're in late capitalism? I mean, we weren't in late capitalism apparently in the Victorian age, depending on how strictly you want to use your terms. So this is a very, very constant uh, conceptualized facet of human thinking. It, it is with us in almost all of our philosophies, which is why I think the seeker owes it to him or herself not to feel hemmed into these choices that are presented to us, because a lot of these choices, they're overwhelmingly persuasive by dint of familiarity. And familiarity is not truth. When you grow up in an atmosphere, uh, in our case, Western culture, that for centuries and centuries and centuries has one way or another repeated and repackaged the messianic idea, including in materialist philosophies like Marxism, it's so persuasive. And you might start a breakaway philosophy that's completely uh, different in terms of its uh, terminology and reference points than any that's come before, but it leads you to the exact same strata of thinking. And that's what New Age has done. There's a conviction among New Age folk, and I don't use that term in a negative way. I would just soon apply it to myself. There's a conviction among New Age folk 
that consciousness is evolving. I see no evidence of that. I see no evidence mm. of that. Uh, one could even say there's reverse evidence. One could say that the amount of time that we spend on television and on screens and using satellite mapping imagery has reduced vital parts of our of our intellect in terms of our capacity to uh, learn new languages and to conceive of things conceptually and to mm -hmm. use our analytic brains and so forth. And another person could argue, well, but there's, there's, there's arguably, um, uh, less violence, a, a case made by a materialist thinker named Steven Pinker. Um, there's greater, uh, there's greater empathy. Life is less brutal. Those are valid arguments too, that, that could be made, but I just don't, I don't see any evidence necessarily uh, that the psyche uh, is is evolving. Are we closer to nature? Are we closer to the extra physical? Are we using more facets of our psyche? Well, probably in certain respects, yes. In certain respects, no. But to make the claim that we as psychical beings are poised on some intellectual uh, precipice, I'd need to see uh, evidence of that or find a way of verifying that. And I I don't I don't see that other than it is a a semi-persuasive claim because it's so familiar, because it grows yeah. out of our natural way of thinking of things. Yeah, that's so it's that's maybe not quite the answer I expected because I have heard you identify as uh, New Age on like... You know, yes, I have. Age. It's, it's the one area of New Age thought that I break with actually. Okay. Um, the millennialism, if you want to call it that. To me, New Age is a uh, radically ecumenical therapeutic spirituality. That's all it is. And I agree, mm -hmm. uh, at the end of my first book, Occult America, I identify five facets of the new age. And the one of the five that I break with is the belief that we are evolving to, towards some sort of greater consciousness, because I simply don't mm -hmm. see a sign of that. So if I agree with four out of five articles of the faith, I'll wear the label, but yeah. <laughs> I do break with that. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, you, this has been uh, such a wonderful conversation. I so, are you how familiar with the tarot? Are you? Uh, pretty familiar. <laughs> okay, yeah, I thought so. I figured as much. Um, the uh, one of the things that I like to do on the show is like draw a tarot card to, to either oh yeah by all means to the conversation or give us some closing thoughts. Uh, so I just drew the high priestess. Oh. And, uh, you know, for, for listeners, this is the card. She's got the, uh, the pillars on either side of her. One's black, one's white. Uh, and she's uh, sort of a, a religious-looking figure, obviously. She's the priestess. She's got uh, pomegranates in the background. She's got flowing white robes and a crown. Um, and I, this is not a card that I draw frequently, so I actually don't have, like, a, a ready-set list of keywords. But I wonder... Uh, kind of what that what that evokes for you? Well, I'm you know I'm relieved. First of all, I was worried. Oh shit, he's gonna you know pull the nine of swords, and then I'm gonna have yeah. a hell of a you know, time explaining that. You know, so um, uh, <clears throat> I love that card uh, in the um, deck designed by Arthur Edward Wade and Pamela mm -hmm. Coleman Smith. The figure of the high priestess is seated between two two poles. Um, Marta B and 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 J Boaz and Yaquin uh, for the, the negative and and positive influences. Uh, it is a card of uniting opposites. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that uh, the high priestess is the baphomet of tarot in the sense mm. that this is such a 
amalgam of, of different forces, uh, both the esoteric and the exoteric. She is the, the guardian of the mysteries, and yet she's seated on the throne, which is this kind of expository public uh, presentation. Uh, the pomegranate is a fruit that is associated both with our underworld, Hades, and our upper world, mm-hmm. the physical world in which we dwell. It, it's sort of a fruit that almost travels among uh, the two the two worlds that 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 mythically uh, is consumed sometimes during the winter when the earth is asleep sometimes during the uh, spring summer when the earth comes back to wakefulness so everything about the high priestess is both the esoteric and the exoteric as opposed to a figure like the hierophant which is more a presentation of the exoteric nothing wrong with it but it's the public presentation of the search the high priestess, could be said to be the esoteric presentation of the search, but there she is, you know, right out there in the open, veil and everything. She's seated front and center, so it's a, it's a very beautiful, alluring card. Yeah, I and you know, I think it captures uh, maybe one of the main lessons that I'm uh, taking away from our conversation, uh, which is this uh, balance that uh, that I think you you promote. I think. In your writing, there's a groundedness in factuality and uh, history uh, that reminds us that, like, even though we're like exploring these sort of fanciful uh, and and alluring territories, there's still uh, the real world events that actually happened, and you can trace the evolution of these ideas through, you know, like an actual uh, paper trail. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that, I guess one of the themes of our conversation is this balance between opposites of like, uh, you know, groundedness, I guess, like maybe earth shit and heaven shit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I really love that. I'm, I'm coming away from this conversation feeling uh, maybe, maybe actually a little bit less convinced of the, the coming Aquarian apocalypse than I was <laughs> going in, uh, but in a good way in like a, you know, like, Things will persist, and and there's uh, room for optimism in that. And and uh, I really appreciate you. You know, like this is this is such an honor for you to have uh, joined me on my podcast. I I really appreciate it. Uh, thank well, you. you know, the the reason I, I joined you was because of the beautiful letter that you sent, and you were clearly uh, very involved in and committed to the topics. Uh, you were familiar and well-versed in my stuff. You were enthusiastic. And um, the magic key for me is um, enthusiasm and, and preparation. And you displayed both of those. And uh, that's, that's why I said yes. <laughs> yes. You've, you've acted on that. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, before we go, is there anything that you, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the modern occult is about to come out. Uh, it's available for pre-order, I, I take it? Yeah, it's a modern occultism. It's available right. for pre-order on Amazon or any place you buy your books. It's coming out in uh, audio, digital print, September 19th. Uh, worked very hard on it. Uh, proud, proud of the book. It explores the historical arc of a lot of the things we've discussed and I very much appreciate uh, your listeners supporting it. I'm going to be speaking uh, in Los Angeles uh, September 22nd, Friday, September 22nd. I'll also be speaking uh, earlier that week, same venue with the artist Chet Czar. And uh, so that's a chance to see me. It's at the Philosophical Research Society. You can visit their website for tickets. 
uh, or visit me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz uh, or Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. And that's usually a good way to stay current with me. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much uh, for, for joining. And, Pleasure, uh, and also you, you've sent over like an advanced copy of the book, which I just devoured. Uh, and, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use it as a blueprint to turn the Creek Masons into a cult. So that's <laughs> a blueprint for what? Sorry. Uh, I'm going to use it as a blueprint to, uh, turn the, the podcast community into, you know, like oh, a, a real legitimate spiritual <laughs> organization in, in the fashion of the theosophists and the, oh, sweet. Great. And I love all it. of that. I love it. <laughs> thank thank <laughs> so you. thank you for the inspiration. Thank you for joining Absolutely. me. And uh, have have a great rest of your week. Absolutely. Great talking. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.